Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. On today's episode, we have two guests again. This is part of our dynamic duo series that we did for the MetaSLP Collective Summit that we hosted a few weeks ago. And if you're still interested in accessing those recordings, you can do that at metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit. Uh, but the two wonderful speakers that we had today are going to be talking a little bit about aphasia, which I know this is primarily a swallowing podcast, but June is dysphagia awareness month, swallowing disorders awareness month, and also aphasia awareness month. So that we'd be remiss if we did not acknowledge that since uh, most of us work with both swallowing and with aphasia. So uh, without further ado, Jessica Sharon received her bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her master's degree from New York Medical College. Since 2012, she's been working at the HMH JFK University Medical Center's Johnson Rehab Institute, where she treats adults with speech, language, cognitive, and swallowing disorders to maximize their safety, independence, and quality of life. She runs weekly support groups for stroke survivors and their family members, incorporating the life participation approach to aphasia. Jessica has experience as an adjunct professor teaching aphasia and other neurological communication disorders at Keene University's Department of Communication Disorders and Deafness. She's a volunteer for NJSHA's Multicultural Issues and Healthcare Committee, the Aphasia Access Resource Exchange Committee, and Adler Aphasia Center's SLP Advisory Committee. And joining Jessica is Dr. Gina Danner. She is a rehab psychologist for the inpatient rehab units of Johnson Rehabilitation Institute at JFK University Medical Center. Dr. Danner graduated with her bachelor's degree in psychology from Rutgers in 1997 and her doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Fairleigh Dickinson University in 2004. Dr. Danner has over 20 years of clinical experience and has been working in a rehab setting for almost 15 years. She has professional affiliations with the American Psychological Association and Division 22 Rehab Psychology of the APA. And thank you to both Jessica and Dr. Danner. I learned so much from this conversation. I hope you all enjoy it as well. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thanks for having us. So excited. I'll have you guys introduce yourself, tell the people about you. So I'm Gina Danner. I have a PhD in clinical psychology from Fairleigh Dickinson. I graduated in 2004. I've been working here at JFK in our Johnson Rehab Institute for 10 years now, and I am the only inpatient rehab psychologist on our rehab facility. We have three units, brain trauma, and then two more general uh, rehab units. And I'm Jessica Sharon. I'm a speech language pathologist. 
I received my bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and my master's from New York Medical College. And I've been working here at JFK University Medical Center, Johnson Rehab Institute, since 2012. I work with mostly adult status post-stroke, traumatic brain injury, dementia, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. I also work with some young adults on the autism spectrum. And I also have teaching experience. I was an adjunct professor teaching aphasia. I really believe in the life participation approach to aphasia and maximizing quality of life for my patient and their family members. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me, you guys. I'm so excited to have this conversation. And Gina, this is so cool to have you involved too. And oh, this is great. Okay. So where should we get started? Let's dive in. Well, we recently recorded our webinar for the Medical SLP Summit. And we discussed the overlap between our two professions. So we could start there. So Dr. Danner and I work closely working to maximize outcomes for the inpatient rehabilitation clients. And we sort of come at different angles to solve a collective problem that a lot of our patients are experiencing a very traumatic time in their lives. And I think working together over these years, we've learned there's so much overlap between our professions and we've learned how to support one another when working with a variety of patients, no matter what their skill level is or their background. And so, yeah, that's kind of, we're sort of partners in crime and we work hard to maximize outcomes for our clients. So in our talk, in our webinar, we recently discussed how what we found is that both speech language pathologists and mental health professionals, they report a lack of confidence working with patients with aphasia. There's lack of formal training, and sometimes there's even a fear. How am I going to reach these clients? There are so many barriers, language, cognitive, limiting beliefs, behaviors sometimes. And as a result of that, we found that more formal education is needed in addition to just kind of taking risks and being brave and trying your best to work with patients. Yeah, psychologists, sadly, don't have much experience with uh, patients with aphasia. And, you know, in full disclosure, I had really no experience when I first started here. And I think Jessica was kind enough to noticed that I, I was a little shy sometimes working with our patients, especially the ones who, when I would walk in, would just cry. <laughs> and there was really not much I could do to help them, or at least that I felt that I could do. So she encouraged me to take this two-day course with Adler, Adler's... Uh, the Adler Aphasia Center. Adler Aphasia Center. So it was a two-day course. The first day they spent kind of really emphasizing the neurobiology aphasia. And then the next day was really the best part because it really showed, gave, gave me all sorts of strategies for working with the patients. So it was really a great resource and one that psychologists just don't know enough about. I, I, Gina, I would love to hear your role a little bit more because I think that's such a cool and unique role that you have. Yeah. When I saw that you guys were going to be presenting, I was like, this is such a cool, you know, we titled the some of the dynamic duos. And I was like, this is the coolest dynamic duo. So, yeah. Oh, so we have a brain trauma unit and we have uh, two more general units, like I said. And so I'm the psychologist. I get consulted through our rehab residents, through our attending physicians, and oftentimes through our speech OTs and PTs. You know, they'll be with the patient. They'll see that the patient is upset or crying. Also reach out to me. And so I get consulted. We have like 90 beds. 
And we really developed this nice informal relationship where I've kind of given everybody my cell phone number and I tell them if somebody is in distress today, please reach out to me, text me so that I can prioritize people who really need a little TLC. And then I kind of come in and try and do the best I can to support them and, you know, not so much acceptance because it's really a transition period but kind of getting adjusted to the rehab setting here. And I like to tell the patients, you know, I've never experienced what you're experiencing, but I've been here a long time and I've seen many people go through it and I see them all come out on the back end and how resilient people are. So, you know, just really try and encourage them and so that they can see they can get through it. And just to add to that, it's really easy for perhaps newer clinicians or people who are uncomfortable to say, I know how you feel or, you know, just put your best foot forward, be positive. But this is a really devastating time for patients and their family members. Aphasia is a family disease. It doesn't just impact the individual, it impacts everyone in their sphere of communication. And I think that as care providers, we have to be upfront and honest and not pretend to know someone's experience because we can't possibly know unless we've lived it. And most of us have not. And I find our Jess and our other speech therapists are just so helpful to me because often, you know, there are times where I don't really know what I'm walking into with patients and I can kind of grab them quickly and say, hey, what's going on? And they can give me a real rundown. You know, and working with patients with aphasia, sometimes they can express themselves, but it's not always so accurate. So it's helpful to me to know like how much information I'm getting really is accurate or inaccurate and kind of try and go just with the feeling sometimes and not even really listen to what their responses are, but, you know, just to let them guide the session through how they're feeling. I would say we inform each other. We've had patients together where I say, you know, I, I feel like there's something off and Dr. Danner will provide insight, you know, in a HIPAA-friendly way, of course, but, you know, perhaps point out, well, this person has a long history starting in childhood of trauma, so that might be the reason why you're getting some resistance. Likewise, if a patient requires AAC or picture communication boards, some kind of alternative augmentative communication, that is usually set up, which can then help guide more counseling services and make sure it's, you know, as productive as possible, despite those communication challenges. Yeah. I think, I just think this is such an interesting relationship and dynamic, and I just wish more facilities offered this because I think you know, how much, Jessica, I know how much, you know, counseling we have to do and we just don't feel like we know what we're doing or that's within our scope of practice, but it, it sort of is because there's things that we have to talk about and get through. And so just having that professional support there with Dr. Banner, I think is, is so amazing. And I, I love that you guys get to work with each other. Yeah, absolutely. What we found in our research is that speech language pathologists know that addressing anxiety and depression and all these effects from the stroke or whatever the etiology is, is part of our scope, but so many of us are just uncomfortable. And so we avoid it. Maybe we feel like we have to get through our goals and, you know, finish 10 items of this worksheet or, or what have you, or maybe people lack, you know, you mentioned in a recent webinar, Teresa, that EQ, that emotional intelligence. So it takes a lot of courage to address these issues. And, you know, it's not just in the individual setting. We run support groups for patients with aphasia and their loved ones. And the counseling really never stops. It starts from the moment the person has their stroke or whatever event 
has brought them to the hospital and it continues throughout their recovery. Yeah, I think it's just something I've always loved about our field and our job is and you know, I had an awesome counseling class in grad school and you know, it was part of a laryngectomy support group and I just empathy and support that everybody had for each other. I just I loved that so much. And I think sometimes we like like you said, we lose sight of that and you know, we have to get through these worksheets or get through all these exercises and this stuff is just so important. It certainly is. I also feel like what we do is part of the life participation approach to aphasia, recognizing that we have to provide services for the individual and everyone in that individual sphere of communication because it's devastating. Sometimes it's the breadwinner who has suffered this traumatic event and cannot go back to work or someone who served as an interpreter for their loved ones in the outside world. It really shakes the core of a household and impacts family dynamics and I've had clients who say, you know, I feel like I'm a widow. Even though my husband is alive, I feel like in a sense he's gone. And there is hope in the beginning and each month or year that passes, some of that hope dwindles. But that's why it's so important for these services to be available for these vulnerable clients and their loved ones to make sure that they have the best chance at returning to a meaningful quality of life. Can you guys talk maybe, you know, some examples or, you know, obviously HIPAA-friendly, you know, patients you've worked with together? I just, I would love to sort of hear how that dynamic really unfolds in real time. Absolutely. So I'll start with the gentleman who left our facility not too long ago. He had a stroke and also a history of dementia. And unfortunately, his wife passed away, I think, a day before he was admitted to rehab. And the longer he stayed here, the more frustrated he became. And it was all things that I felt I could handle. It was within my wheelhouse. I'm very comfortable with counseling. But towards the end, he started to discuss self-harm, saying things like, I just want to end it. And that was a red flag to me, as as it should be, that there are times when even if you feel super confident counseling an individual, then you need to refer out to a mental health professional. Anytime that you're talking about assessing self-harm, you see signs of abuse or something that's beyond the scope of the communication disorder itself, you really need to ask for assistance from a psychologist or a social worker. I'm lucky to have Dr. Danner in-house, so I just shoot her a text. But I know not everyone has that access. So with that patient, then I kind of went in and I assessed, you know, whether or not there was a real plan or whether or not he even had the capability or capacity to, you know, harm him. So we were able to square that away. He was okay. But it's hard. It's a terrible thing to lose a spouse and then to find yourself to be hospitalized where you can't go to the funeral you know, help your and your family. All he kept saying is, where's my daughter? Where's my daughter? Because she was busy dealing with the funeral and trying to, you know, everything together to get to be ready for him to come home to her. So it was a real struggle. Dr. Danner frequently comes to my caregiver group and she provides education and insight about self-care and making sure that you're eating, that you're sleeping, that you're taking a little me time, even if that's just like a five-minute walk. Because for better or for worse, caregivers can experience burnout. And oftentimes, they pour everything into the survivor and they totally neglect their own needs. They have to take care of themselves in order to be able to care for someone else. Yeah, that, and that was actually going to be my next question, Jessica, was, you know, Dr. Danner, how much of what you do is caregiver-focused as opposed to the actual patient that's in your setting? 
I do see families as well, but oftentimes I find that the patients have become patients because they were busy being caregivers and have neglected their own care um, and their own health. And because they're so busy caring for their family, whether it's, you know, working really hard and long hours and, you know, not watching their diet or exercise, their sleep, and just having these bad habits because they're so busy with everybody else. So there's kind of that end of it. And then I do also see family members that'll come in, spouses that are kind of coping with, you know, these sudden kind of tragic events that happen out of nowhere, you know, trying to kind of wrap their head around it and encouraging them to try and take their time to sleep and rest. And as much as they want to be here to try and, you know, stay home a little bit as well. It's it's a tough time for people. Perhaps we can talk about COVID-19 and its impact on this vulnerable population. We know that people with aphasia and, and other communication disorders, but particularly those with aphasia, have been truly devastated by the effects of the coronavirus and social distancing and isolation. A population that was already at high risk for anxiety and depression has experienced so much more of it. Their social networks were shut down. They may not have had access to individual treatment or group treatment. They probably had a lot of uncertainty. They may not have understood what was happening. I remember around March 2020, at that time, I was still running my in-person groups, and people naturally were talking about COVID-19, and a few of my members kind of had confused looks on their face. They didn't really know what was happening. They saw people were starting to wear masks, but they didn't know why. And so as a result of that, a lot of organizations like Stroke Onward, the Adler Aphasia Center, they started compiling educational materials in an aphasia-friendly format, but it was a dark time for everyone. I can't think of a single person who didn't experience some kind of anxiety, uncertainty, depression, or loss. And so this population was, I think, hit hardest. I know here in the hospital, the visitation policy had to adapt in order to stop the spread of the illness. So we had patients, I saw patients die and their loved ones had to say goodbye using an iPad or through a window and how devastating it was for for them and for us. I'm not going to lie. I had sessions where I'm crying in the session. I'm trying to hide my tears because it can't, it, it impacts you. There's no way around it. What about you? How did, how did COVID really change the way you practice and what you view things? Well, one of the lovely things about my position is that I have what no one else has, which is time. So I could literally sit with a patient for, you know, all day if I had to or wanted to. So I found that during COVID-19, you know, especially with the elderly population who couldn't manage an iPhone if they had one, it was lovely that we did have people who would go around with iPads to try and keep people connected. But I had patients that I would literally spend, you know, almost half a day with just to keep them company. And because it was so isolating, you know, that nurses could only do so much. And how long does it take to get in and out of these rooms when you have to gown up with all these things and then take off all the gowns and go to the next patient. So it was a really difficult and stressful end, you know, and also because I'm a psychologist, I'm so optimistic. So every time it was getting better, I was like, oh, it's over. And then it would start all over again. And we'd have to go back to gowning up like crazy and wearing all sorts double masks and triple masks and it was rough. But I think it brought us together so much, you know, the staff is so much closer and we're really tight now. I had some silver on That's what I always try to find. Yeah, absolutely. It was a dark time and I think it highlighted the importance of medical professionals and clinicians just filling their own cup. 
not burning out because I think it was a time when a lot of people questioned their worth and how much am I really helping and, you know, putting myself at risk and my family and hindsight, it's a little bit better. But in at the time, it was much harder to see ahead with clarity. And I would get questions a lot. People would say, why are you here? And nurses are like, why are you here? Everybody's going home and working from home. And I'm like, I can't work from home. How do I do this from home? And I felt like it was almost like a betrayal to my coworkers to do this from home when Jess is showing up every day. And so was everybody else. I can't, I can't stay home. That sounded ridiculous. Yeah. There's just some things that the human connection cannot be replaced with. So. And that brings up the whole, you know, can of worms about teletherapy. Is it effective? A lot of people quickly adapted to teletherapy during COVID-19, both for mental health counseling and for speech language pathology services. And it served a purpose, but there are so many barriers to that. You might have adults who are technology illiterate or cognitively they lack the capacity to attend to a screen. Maybe they don't have support at home. Maybe they are just weary of this new format. You know, my grandmother, she didn't, she was afraid of using a VCRs. I can't imagine if she ever had, you know, to adapt like this. But it was, it was only game in town for time and it stopped, you know, the complete cessation of services and hopefully improved or at least maintained skills. I had clients who refused to come to my virtual aphasia groups. And then when they finally did come in person, when we were clear to have them, I could tell there was a huge regression in their skills. And now as a result, we sort of have two groups. We have an in-person group and a virtual group because some people have not quite made the transition back to going out in the public as much as they had pre-COVID. And people are still testing positive. People are still afraid. Yeah, I think um, anybody who had any sort of kind of bubbling or undercover mental illness or anxiety, depression, like it just lit a fire. You know, I think there are still people who just won't really leave the house. Jessica, talk a little bit about, you know, what would you say to some of these facilities that don't have somebody like Dr. Dan or like clearly you're passionate about counseling skills and, and integrating this in your practice and you have a, a wonderful resource. But, you know, how how would you, you know, I guess what advice could you give to other SLPs that maybe don't have a Dr. Danner in their facility? Absolutely. I would say that they should advocate for their patients and sort of band together. I can't imagine if we did not have an in-house psychologist because Dr. Danner is one of the hardest working people in this building. You know, when it rains, it pours. There are times when I will see her spending a really long amount of time with certain clients, but this is also it's such an imperative service because this is the darkest time of people's lives. They don't know if they're going to be able to go back to work or go back home. And it's a luxury to have someone who instantly, you know, I, I will text her and I'll say, I had a really hard session with Mr. Jones. He's really struggling to cope. Can you please see him? And it's like instant medicine. And I know that financially there are limitations to having a mental health provider at every facility, but we have to try because it's our responsibility to advocate for our patients. And even though speech language pathologists provide counseling, it might not be enough at times. In, in certain situations. So I would just say to talk to your administrators, 
I'm sure there's research showing that consistent counseling can improve outcomes, quality of life. It can improve speech therapy. And it's just, it's about quality of life. And it's one of the most important aspects of the rehab process. Yeah. I like to think that I'm kind of a support for the other therapists because it gives them more time and room to do their work because the patient's do all their venting with me, and then get to work with everybody else. I had a patient a couple weeks ago who, every time I walked into the room, she would question her faith and say, I don't know why God did this to me. God doesn't love me. And she would cry hysterically. And after building a rapport with her, I was able to redirect her to structured tasks, in addition to counseling her myself. But She's a perfect example of someone who needs that dedicated time to address her fears, anxieties, loss of identity, loss of sense of self, and just help her to make the most of her skills and and try to get back on track as as hard as that is. This was awesome, you guys. Thank you so much for this conversation. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Any, Any final thoughts? No, I just want to thank you for all you do. I think this is a really great resource for all clinicians, from students to veterans. And I think what you do is valuable. And I thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much, Dr. Danner. I've loved. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing about you. And I can't say I've ever worked in a place I rehab psychologists and I'm super jealous. I'm sad to hear that. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. So, but I'm super jealous, but hopefully this will spark, you know, some people's brains to advocate to get one or just be able to integrate more counseling skills. I think, you know, we really are in such a mental health crisis in this country right now. And it's just crazy to, you know, all of these things obviously aren't good for our mental health, plus any underlying things that they may come in with. So, yeah. And I would also say that if you're uncomfortable with counseling or if you lacked a formal course in grad school, then, you know, try the CEUs or even just work on yourself. I believe in the holistic big picture. So mindfulness, gratitude, yoga, deep breathing, those things that help us get through our day to day are so useful for our patients. I'm a Peloton lover. And sometimes they say certain things like this is hard, but you can do hard things. And I find myself saying that to my patients because not to compare the two, but sometimes you need a cheerleader in your corner and someone who's passionate and believes in you when you don't believe in yourself to build that therapeutic relationship. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. I can't wait to. Thank you so much. You're my pleasure. Yeah. For your summit presentation. Thank you again, Dr. Banner, for coming in and jumping into our profession for a few days. Oh, it was awesome. I'm I'm privileged, really. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.